So today we continue in Isaiah, this time the second half, in verses 7 to 12, as Michael read out earlier. So last week we established who the servant is in Isaiah 53. It is, of course, Christ our Lord. Then we established that Isaiah 53 is regarded as the fifth gospel. Then we looked at the joy and love in serving the Lord. So today, we look at Isaiah 53, verses 7 to 12, with regard to the servant's purpose, the knowledge of the servant, and then conclude with the type of heart a servant needs. So, to break down the purpose within the text, I want us to see the deliberate language used. This text is so focused on purpose, on what pleases the Father, the very will of God. Verse 8, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. To keep silent is very deliberate. Let's return to the text. And as a sheep before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. This God-man, who is also known as the Word, yet he is silent. This demonstrates purpose, planning, delivering the part of being a humiliated as a God. As our Lord had the power to stop this at any time. Verse 8 reminds me so much of Christ's anguish in prayer to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane and how he allows the guards to capture him. He also was silent and allowed it to happen. If you notice, yet he did not open his mouth in verse 8, is repeated twice. And so too is the, the anguish in the Garden. My Father... Is it possible? May this cup be taken away from me? Is also repeated twice. It's to show emphasis and purpose, but also union. The number two unites. Two in the Bible is expressed in the following ways to show union. Man and woman in marriage. Jesus and his church, the ultimate marriage. The biblical text of the old covenant and the new covenant in one corpus focused on Christ. Union demonstrated in the Garden of Gethsemane and in verse 8 is the uniting of Christ's substitution, substitution of sin for man. So let's go back to the text. Listen how the words of action, direction, and consequence. He was oppressed. He did not open his mouth. Led like a lamb to the slaughter. Cut off from the land of the living. He was assigned a grave. Then there's a flip. And the purpose of language changes to hope, rejoice, and exalting. And all around verse 10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Here you see in the text that it was directed and willed by the Father. Now the Trinitarian reason of salvation, of redemption, comes into play. We return to the text. He will see the, his offspring and prolong his days. He will see the light of life and be satisfied. 
by his knowledge. The righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Then lastly, from being assigned to the grave, we now read in verse 12, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Based on the deliberate, purposeful text, I'm going to give you two applications on this first point. The pattern of our lives as Christians, the journey from exaltation to humiliation back to exaltation, and then secondly, serving the highest. So let's look at the pattern of our lives as Christians. The pattern of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 and the Christian is so similar. It's very distinct. We move from high status, low status, and then to high status again. Let's take Job, who was named in the book of Job as my servant by the Lord. Interestingly, he started off exalted on the high. So much so that Satan could, uh, could test this old chap. But then he went from an earthly life of treasure and bounty to nothing in earthly terms. He lost his house, his wealth, his family. But amazingly, Job still served his master, our Lord. The loss of everything but faith and love for his God. Then Job was raised from nothing to be exalted by the Lord. Because at this point of earthly loss, his heart was overfilled with the heavenly citizenship. He was playing in the real league of knowing and understanding the two worlds we face daily. The Caesar, the world of Caesar, and the spiritual world of serving our Father. The same as for Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant. He goes from being this God-man who is higher than all men. He never sinned the ultimate status to mankind wanting to hurt and kill him. To him willingly becoming a substitution and sacrifice for the unrighteous sinners. A low status. Then being elevated because of his low status to the right hand of the Father on the throne of grace once he had taken the cup, the substitution of man's sins. Now yours and my turn, if we're honest. We were a proud person that may not have had highly status in our society, but we were above all that holy stuff. Church was for all those good doers. Let me just live the life I want. But then came our humiliation before the Lord. We saw the true sinner we were we needed repentance, our low. And only by repentance and spiritual renewal in Christ by his grace, we were as Christians today. We've achieved the highest level of potential as a creature because we know the creator, because it's a real relationship with God. It has value and gave us peace. Exalted in our earthly previous lives, then into our low times, and then exalted higher with the Lord. In our old lives, we could never dream as an earthly man or ground dweller that we'd communicate with the 
creator of the universe. And our goal is not of this flesh, but of spiritual renewal and communion with our Lord again. God's servant, Job. Christ, the anointed one, servant of us all. And you and I, servants of Christ. We are all servants. Let's not forget our designation. What our role is in God's eyes. What is our function? Is it to sweep the floor here week after week? Is it obeying the need of your church, the body of Christ? What is your service to the Lord? So to the second point of this application, serving the highest. So often in life we fail to serve the right person or make the right choice in serving the highest. Before I go to the text to demonstrate this, allow me to explain the concept in lay terms, summarizing another suffering servant, Joseph. Joseph, son of Jacob, as we all know, served Pharaoh. Pharaoh's wife never liked this and tested him to be with her in order to get him in trouble. But it was the service and knowledge of God that would not allow him to be with Pharaoh's wife. Not the fact that he worked for the ruler of the land and it was wrong. Joseph served God first, then Pharaoh. If Joseph had failed, as many men have failed and fallen on the sword and fell for the woman's invitations, then Joseph would have served the lesser. He did not. He served the higher. We do this evaluation daily, seeing the lowest or the highest. Another example, in the Garden of Genesis, Eve listening to the devil as she could become like God and know good and evil. She served the lesser by choosing that fruit. And she got the lesser result, sin. In Isaiah 53, notice three points. The suffering servant served the highest, namely the Father's will. Christ is also serving the Trinitarian ver- uh, vision of salvation and redemption. The highest vision of bringing us, the created fools, into union with God again. Christ served those that were unable to redeem themselves due to the law of the Old Testament. Christ gave us a new way to be in union with the Lord by serving Him. Serving Him is what we're equipped for. The expression or vision of a mature Christian is not how much knowledge you have or accumulated over time. It's not how good a prayer you are, how much scripture you know, but rather that you are serving. Here's the deal. You learn more knowledge about Christ so that you're empowered to serve. That is why you're generally a settled member in a church before you serve the Lord as you have the foundation of knowledge and the understanding of why you serve. And you know why you're serving is not of a task or a burden, but a blessing to serve. This is how a church becomes profoundly impactful 
by reflecting the very love of Christ, the blessing of Christ. Now allow me to link this to Scripture. We go to Ephesians 4, 11 to 13. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, to equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure and the fullness of Christ. On to the second point, the knowledge of the servant. This for me was a piece I missed so many times. When I read Isaiah 53, I was focusing on the suffering aspect, all the sad elements, and then the flip in the story and the triumph and substitution. But I never saw this knowledge of the servant in the text. It's in verse 11. After he has suffered, he will see the, the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. This, for me, points again exclusively to Christ, God, and man. This knowledge is divine knowledge. Divine knowledge that points to a Trinitarian view of salvation, baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Matthew 28, 19. It means the servant, Christ, was not taken off guard by the Father, crushing him. And as per the prayer that he did in the Garden of Gethsemane, he knew about it. This was all planned in advance. And most importantly, Christ agreed with it. This concept of Christ not being taken off guard is really important to the biblical text and the meaning of our very salvation. But why? I asked Dundalk Baptist Church, why does it have meaning for our salvation? Let's say Jesus was caught off guard. And God snuck up on him and put him to death. Then his death is totally different. The person of the Trinity did not have a united goal of salvation. And then this unbelievable sacrifice becomes a death that justifies no one. Let me repeat that so it sinks in. If Jesus did not agree with being put to death for our sins, then the result is he justifies no one. Not you, Michael. Not you, Mick at the back. No one. Suddenly it becomes very scary sitting here and standing up here as a follower of a suffering servant that did not suffer for you and I. Okay, he did suffer, but then not as a servant in this scenario. This scenario emphasizes the importance of why he was a servant for us. This thought of Jesus dying without the knowledge of the righteous servant that will justify many is scary. 
Jesus had to be aware and have knowledge of the why he was doing it. This redeeming work of that servant, that is, Jesus was fully aware, fully conscious, and willing in agreement with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, the knowledge of the joint redeeming work of the Trinity. The primary understanding of this text was willing, loving Christ, a suffering service that wanted to save a wrench like me. There's a point of application with this pre-knowledge for us. If you sit here today with this book, a revelation from God, if Christ knows, so too we know about being a servant. A servant is knowing this work is for the kingdom of God. Church work. It's unseen work. Lots of things happened in this church this week. But if I was to go around and ask you individually what actually happened, you wouldn't know. And that's good. Because that's its beauty and attraction. You get to serve the Lord directly. It's not about, oh, he did this and he did that. No, you serve the Lord directly. Look at the Sunday school teachers that will kick in directly after this sermon. The Sunday school teachers don't go on about helping the kids on how to spell or how to behave. No. The whole focus of the Sunday school teachers is to see the kingdom of God and how these little ones, the future church, can be a part of it. The blessing of passing that knowledge of Christ knew that made him the suffering servant for us all. So to my final point, what type of heart do I need to be a servant? Well, let's start off with the heart Christ had. So we're getting to the core of his character. What does he think of us? It's the heart of this unbelievable servant, Christ, that makes the gospel sing, the angels sing, the work of the Spirit. Romans 5.5. 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given it to us. Ezekiel 18.31 Cast away from all the transgressions that you've committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? The heart of Christ creates the new heart in us. Isaiah 53, verse 12. For he bore the sin of many and he made intercession for the transgressor. The father did not crush his son for his sins, for his doing, but because of our sins and the willing servant by the knowledge got crushed. You will know somebody, especially somebody's heart, when you see their desires. What truly satisfies them? 
And it was us being united to Christ. Us being united to the Trinitarian God that satisfied Christ. Our sin was his want. What a heart Christ has to see beyond the suffering to the everlasting, into the, the new creation that awaits us all. How big is his heart that needs, that he needs a heart that can take all our sin? Christ did this so that we can be those born again hearts in the new Jerusalem. The heart of a servant, when done correctly, is never about the task, whether working in the creche, painting the walls, sweeping the floor of the church. It's about the blessing of helping others, the joy of seeing, especially in a church environment, knowing and growing in the Lord, finding out about the kingdom we're all going to be a part of. And for those future souls that are going to be coming through that door in the, in the future, for them to know about the kingdom of God. Matthew eleven twenty nine, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This heart service as the servant of the Lord and yours is for the same purpose. We all grow in the kingdom of God. So let's conclude with how I can serve the Lord best to my best ability. You all know your gifts, your talents. But remember a few moments back I said, Christ and us are servants in the same way. Our mission is simple. Building the Father's kingdom. So it's the scripture I close with, with this short journey of these last two Sundays in Isaiah 53. It's a parable about saving or serving the kingdom of God. When I'm reading it, I want you to have two things in the front of your mind. Remember the deal we spoke of earlier. You learn more knowledge about Christ so that you are empowered to serve. Secondly, think of how you give your return in using your talents for the Lord. The, lot, the knowledge of the Lord is given to you by His grace in serving His kingdom. So, to the parable of the ten minutes. Before I read this parable, let me remind you what a minna is. A minna was a Greek monetary unit worth 100 denarii. Or, in simple terms today, it's worth about four months' wages. That's if you work a six-day week. So it's a lot of money. Let's go to the text. We join Luke 19, verse 11. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. That's Jesus. Because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed a king and then to return. So he called his servants 
and gave them ten minas and said, put this money to work until I come back. But the subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. I hope that sounds very familiar to Isaiah 53. Back to the text. He was made king, however, and he returned home and then sent for the servants who had give, he had given the money to in order to find out what they had gained with it. So he called the first one and said, Sir, your manna has earned me ten more. Well done, my good servant, the master replied. Because you've been trustworthy in my um, very small matter, take charge of ten cities. Then the second servant came. Sir, your manor has earned five more. The master answered, you take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, there is your manor. I've kept it and laid it away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you, you did and put it in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put the money on deposit so that when I come back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take this manna away from him and give it to the one with ten manas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. And he replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Amen. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you as a church to your throne of grace. Hallowed be your name. Oh Lord, help us to understand this balance that we spoke of in the sermon. This balance of the knowledge you have given us and our ability to serve. And also what we are serving, Lord. We are serving your kingdom. Lord, may Isaiah 53 be a verse that we, or a chapter that we read this week. May we go through it and understand what your servant Christ did for us. His full knowledge of what he did for us. And it was for that future kingdom. And that is why he was your servant. Oh Lord, help us to take these treasures and put it on thy heart. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to be upstanding and we're going to sing the next song, which is going to be the Lamb of God, and then we'll break for our relevant Sunday schools.